approach Him and have relationship with, with not just Him, but His entire community of His people. And at times, we can, we can look at those laws, specifically what, what makes Israelites clean or unclean. We can look at those laws, and we can wonder what that possibly has to do with us as 21st century Christians. We don't typically think of the terms clean and unclean in terms of our faith in Jesus. We just, we just don't. And so they seem, just, uh, they seem distant from us, right? But in reality, these passages are incredibly important for us to understand. These passages in Leviticus are important for us to understand today because the concepts of clean and unclean found in these chapters, in these chapters of Leviticus 11 through 15, are necessary in truly understanding what Jesus is saying here in our passage in Mark 7, verses 14 through 23. And so what I want to do today is first look at the importance of these laws of uncleanliness in Leviticus. And then I want us to see how that informs our understanding of Jesus' teaching in Mark 7. And I believe that will help us have a more full and greater appreciation for the love and for the mercy of God that He shows towards us. But first, let us begin with prayer. Father God, we thank you that you have allowed us to come here today to sing praises to your name and to dive into your word. And so, Father, I pray that you give us ears to hear the things that you want us to hear and you open the eyes of our hearts to, to truly hold on to the truths, to apply the truths that we learned today to our lives. Father, we love you. Pray this in your son's name. There's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Dr. Benjamin Shaw. Dr. Benjamin Shaw. And he points out rightly that when we look at these laws of cleanliness in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, there are two important aspects to these laws that are, that are good and important for us to know. And the first is a practical aspect. There's a practical aspect to these laws. And then secondly, there is a theological or spiritual aspect to these laws. Now the practical aspect of these laws and regulations were, were essentially part of the directions that God gave His people in order to set them apart from the surrounding nations who did not know God. As Deuteronomy 4.6 puts it, the laws will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And so, so the practical outworking of all of these laws that God gave to Israel was to make a dividing line between them and the rest of the world. They were to be a city set upon a hill that was to be a beacon to the other nations of the glory of God. And you can see this also in Leviticus 10.3, when the Lord says, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. So in other words, in interacting with God 
on a daily basis, by following these commands, by following these laws, the people of Israel were to remember that God is holy. And they are to live lives that are set apart from the rest of the world for the glory of God. We also see that the priests had a special part to play in this practical aspect in way of instructing Israel. In Leviticus 10, 10 through 11, where God says to Aaron, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And so from this, we learn that the priesthood had this special responsibility to instruct the people in how they were to live as God's holy nation. The distinctions between holy and common and between clean and unclean were part and parcel of that instruction. Now, the theological aspect of the cleanliness laws was to teach people very specific things. They were to teach the people of God about themselves, about God, and about their relationship with God. You see, the people of Israel, as a whole, were holy, just as we talked about. That is, they had been set apart by God for himself and for his glory. However, in approaching him, whether that was bringing him a sacrifice or an offering or simply living in relationship with him on a daily basis, they were to maintain that holiness by coming to him only, only when they were in a state of cleanness. But as you can imagine, especially if you read through the laws in Leviticus 11 through 15, that was an impossibly difficult state to maintain. It was impossible to stay clean, to stay undefiled in the eyes of God. You just, you just couldn't do it. Almost anything at any time could plunge them into this state of uncleanliness. For instance, they might, they might touch a dead body, or they might eat the wrong kind of food. A woman might have, be having her menstrual period. A, a person might have some sort of skin disease. A family house or garments might be infested with mold or mildew. All these are laws within Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 11 through 15 that made someone unclean. And so some of these uncleanliness laws were, so to speak, just, just natural things that happened and required only washing and waiting until the end of the day for the cleanness to be restored. But others, such as some sort of skin disease, it required the offering of sacrifice for purification. You had to sacrifice for purification as well as washing with water. And so by these means, the people attempted to maintain, or, or rag, uh, rather not, not maintain, but regularly restore their cleanness before God through the ordinary course of life that was, that was riddled, riddled with unclean obstacles. And so at, at this point, I know that's, that's a lot of information, that's kind of an information dump, and at this point you may be wondering how this has any sort of theological, how it has any sort of spiritual point to it. Because to our eyes, especially to the eyes of, of our culture, of our modern culture, these laws often just seem ridiculous. They seem crazy and impossible to bear. 
How could these laws be teaching the Israelite people about themselves? How could it be teaching them about God and their relationship to Him? They seem arbitrary, to say the least. Well, those theological things, they seem, they seem disjointed, right? They seem disjointed from these seemingly random uh, and pointless laws that are, that are meant to, to teach something. What they're meant to teach just seems completely irrelevant to what the laws actually say. And so, and so what is it? What's the point? Well, that actually brings us to our passage today in Mark. You see, in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, Jesus gives us, He gives us the theology of the laws of cleanness found in Leviticus. If you remember from last week, if you were here last week, Jesus is in the middle of a confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes. And this confrontation begins with the Pharisees and the scribes coming to Jesus after they witness His disciples not washing their hands before they eat. And in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes were claiming that the disciples were eating with defiled hands, with, with these hands that were unclean. Now, this law of eating with unwashed hands making you unclean is actually, it's important to know, not found in the Torah. It's not found in the law of God. It is not found and it's not listed in the cleanliness laws of Leviticus 11 through 15. It is not there. You won't find it. Instead, it is a tradition. It is a law that was made by man. And the Pharisees and the scribes had elevated this law of man, also called the Mishnah, to the same level of authority as the very word of God. And in verses 6 through 13, Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the scribes by, by doing what? He calls them hypocrites. This, the meek and mild Jesus. He called them hypocrites. Because they had been worshiping God with their lips. But, but in truth, they have really been worshiping themselves because they had abandoned the word of God in order to hold on to these traditions of men. And in verses 14 through 16 of our passage today, Jesus then, after he's talking just with the Pharisees and scribes, he then gathers in this large crowd that was already around him. He brings them in in order to get them involved in this conversation because he wants to be sure that everyone around hears what he has to say next. Because for the Jewish people of this time, the words that Jesus is about to say are groundbreaking. They are groundbreaking. You see, what Jesus will tell them in verses 14 through 16 is essentially this. This is, this is it condensed in a nutshell. He, he essentially says, though you think you have been following my commandments, though you think that you believe, or sorry, though you believe you've been following the laws of God, you, in fact, have missed the heart of the law. You've missed the heart of the law. You've completely misunderstood what the law was meant to teach you. you. See, as Ethan said so well last week during communion, the laws of God were never simply about robotically following a set of do's and don'ts. They were meant to be a picture. 
They're meant to be a picture. And so Jesus says in verses 14 through 15, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now everyone around Jesus could not grasp what he was saying. This message is so foreign, not to just the Pharisees and the scribes, but to the entire crowd that had come around Jesus. Those in the crowd had been sitting under the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes for years and years and years. They've been sitting under teaching that has said that true religion is simply rule-following. Being sure to, to try your best and through your own power, try to remain as clean as you possibly can. And if, you are, if you're pious enough, if you are, are simply holy enough, if you simply just do these right outward actions, then you can remain clean and gain your ticket into heaven. And this is the same teaching that the disciples sat under as well. This is why in verse 17 we read, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Just, they asked him what he just talked about. And so, so they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about either. They were, they were saying, Jesus, what do, you, what do you mean that nothing outside of a person going into him can defile him? Jesus, have you, have you not read the Torah? Have you, have you not read the Mishnah? Jesus, we, we don't understand what you're talking about. You see, like the Pharisees, like the scribes and the crowd, the disciples may have known the law, but friends, they did not understand the heart of the law. They did not understand the theology of the law. And so Jesus, in verse 18 through 23, answers the disciples by explaining his words that he spoke to the crowd. Now, brothers and sisters, I want, I want everyone in this room to pay close attention to Jesus' words here. Because it is here that we learn the theology of these cleanliness laws in Leviticus 11-15. through 15. It is in this response from Jesus that we learn the truth. That we learn the truth about ourselves. It's here that we learn the truth about God. And it's here that we learn the truth about our relationship to Him. And so I, I, I pray that you pay close attention here. Jesus says to them, and He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Jesus being baffled that they, that they have been with Him for so long and they still don't understand what, what Jesus is talking about. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes out? For, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? Outside? No. 
They come from within. And they defile a person. So friends, do you see the significance of Jesus' words here? Do you see how Jesus is interpreting the, the laws in Leviticus 11 through 15 to his disciples? Do, do you see it? You see, Jesus is telling them that those laws of what made you clean and unclean were intended to be a picture that showed them the totality, that the totality of their life was by nature unclean. You see, uncleanliness was, was, not, a, was not sin. Uncleanliness was not sin, but it was a picture of sin. As it was almost impossible to get through a day in ancient Israel without contracting some sort of uncleanliness, the Lord, by these laws, was showing how thoroughly sin had corrupted the human life. There was, there was no way to escape it. And the reason why they couldn't escape it wasn't because of their environment. It wasn't because of the, the world in which they lived. It wasn't because there were pitfalls all around them that they were going to accidentally fall into and become unclean. It wasn't because of the, of the devil tempting them. It wasn't even that. And it wasn't because the laws of God were simply unfair or unreasonable. No. Jesus is saying that the defilement of a person is not dependent on washing or not washing. It's not dependent on eating something or not eating something, touching things or not touching things, on, on doing something or not doing something. It is not anything external that causes you to be unclean in the sight of God. No. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says that the problem is far deeper than that. Our problem as human beings is far worse than that. You see, the impossibility to keep the laws of God was and is meant to show not just to the Israelites, but to you and to I that our hearts are fundamentally, to the core, wicked. Wicked. One common idiom that often gets passed around in our culture today, sadly even in some Christian circles, is that someone is sinful only because they sin. Let me say that one more time. This idiom says that someone is sinful only because they sin. Now the root of this idiom is the doctrine, the, the false doctrine, that human beings by nature are essentially good. At the core of who we are, though, though we may sin from time to time, the core of who we are is still good. And the only reason why we might be called a sinner is just, just because we may mess up from time to time, right? But that, that, that mess up, those mess ups, those, those little sins that we commit through our lives, they don't really define us. It's not really who we are because, again, we are essentially good. And God, and God knows that. And He can see that we're trying. We are, we are trying to do the best things that, that we possibly can. We're trying to do these, these good actions. And so he can see the general goodness of our hearts. And as long as we're doing more good things than bad things, then, hey, we get our tickets into heaven. Right, right? But friends, 
Hear me when I say the testimony of Jesus our Lord in Mark 7, 21 through 27. Verses 21 through 27 tells us a very different story. You see, friends, that idiom, the idiom that says someone is sinful only because they sin is absolutely and profoundly wrong. Scripture tells us that we sin, that we sin because we, in the very core of our being, what the Bible calls our hearts, is sinful. We are sinful. By nature, brothers and sisters, we are not good. We're not. That is the testimony of the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. Let me give you just, just a taste of what God's Word has to say about that. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, meaning wickedness, and in sin my mother conceived me. We are sinful from the womb. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 9 through 11. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew, Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. And listen to this. There is none who in and of themselves seek after God. No one. No one. And so, friends, you and I are not good people who just get slightly dirty when we do bad things. It's not the picture that the Bible gives us of our natures. The problem with humanity is, is, is not what we do. The problem is, is who we are. That's what Jesus means when He says that those things that, that go into a person from the outside can't defile Him. Since, since it just enters not into his heart, but, but his stomach, and then is expelled. But it is what comes out that defiles him. So Jesus here is explaining that defilement does not begin outside of us and then work its way in, corrupting our good hearts. But it begins on the inside, in our sinful and wicked hearts, and works its way out. One Bible teacher calls verses 21 through 23 the, the fingers of sin. It's a great band name, I guess. <laughs> this list that Jesus gives, beginning with our very thoughts, are evidence. They're evidences of our corrupt hearts. Inevitably, the root of our sin, our hearts, will produce fruit. And friends, it is an ugly and destructive crop. And in these verses, Jesus highlights 13 evil actions that flow naturally, that don't need any help from the outside, that just flow naturally from a sinful heart. Actions that always result in sorrow, that always result in behaviors that are unpleasing to God. Each one of these sins could be an entire sermon in and of itself. 
There are evil thoughts. Our very thought life is evil. Sexual immorality, the Greek word here being porneia, which means sexual sin that is outside of God's design, which includes, among other things, homosexuality, lustful thoughts, sex outside of marriage, and so on. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil actions, which we are all guilty of, all of us, Every single one of us in this room are guilty of these things in one degree or another, and they arise from one's own heart, which is the source of sin that makes us unclean. And so, friends, the theology of Leviticus, according to the words of Jesus in Mark 7, is that we're not defiled from the things outside of us. The things outside of us can't defile us. Because why? We're already defiled. We are already unclean. We have hearts that are unclean and dirty before a God that is holy. A God that is transcendent. Morally and ethically pure and perfect. Friends, that's the great problem of humanity. More than anything else in this world. Our problem is sin. More than politics. More than, more than what's going on around the globe, more than interrelationship issues. It's that we have dirty hearts. We have said before, the world looks at this problem. It looks at this problem of uncleanness. And it believes that the main problem is external. That we become unclean because of the things that we do. And so the world's solution is to ask the question, well, what can I do? What can I do? What are the rules that I can follow? What are the good deeds that, that I can accomplish? What are the outward behaviors that I can exhibit in order to fix my sin problem? In order to make myself clean? But friends, Scripture clearly tells us that even our best deeds, even, even the best things that we do, are nothing but filthy rags before our holy God. And have you ever tried to clean a dirty cup with a filthy rag? It doesn't work. There is no amount of good deeds we could ever do to scrub away the filth of the sin in our hearts because we are using dirty rags in order to attempt to do it. So, friends, the problem isn't external, and therefore the solution is not external. And so you might be thinking by now, this is a really uplifting sermon. <laughs> I feel really good right now. You also might be thinking, what is the answer? What's the answer? What is the solution to our heart problem? Well, the answer is simple, friends, and that is we need new hearts. We need new hearts. And brothers and sisters, I know this has been a difficult and bleak sermon so far. But as dire as our sin problem is, the, the mercy, the love and power of God, friends, is so much greater. It is so much greater. And if you've been listening so far with despair at the news of your uncleanliness, then, then good, good. 
Because it is only when you understand the depths of your sin that you can even begin to see and understand the true joy of what I am about to say. So we need new hearts, right? That's, that's, that's the solution to our problem. Well, what is so amazing about our gracious God is that that is exactly what He promises to give us in Ezekiel 36, 25. Listen to these words. And friends, rejoice in your hearts. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. And friends, that is our hope. It's right there. That's the promise of salvation. Friends, we have to be changed on the inside. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. Jesus says to him, you need to be born of the water and the spirit. The water meaning the cleansing, the washing that is described here in Ezekiel 36. And brothers and sisters, that is precisely what happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You are given new life. You're given new life. And, and what does that mean? You're given a new heart. You're given a new heart. This is a change that occurs to, from the, uh, at the very core of who you are. You become born again. Your sin-hardened heart is replaced by a heart of, of flesh, cleansed by the blood of Jesus and made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the beautiful language of the Apostle Paul in Titus 3.5, he says this, he says, He saved us. He saved us. Jesus saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Meaning, not on the basis of any external behaviors that we've done or, or law-keeping on our part. But, but, Paul says, according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And friends, regeneration, if you don't know, is a wonderful, wonderful word in the Bible. It means that something dies, and then something new is born. So this washing of regeneration that Paul speaks of in Titus is a washing that brings total transformation. It means the death of your old, sinful, dirty heart. It dies and the birth of a new heart, a new mind, a new soul takes place. And this, this renewing by the Holy Spirit and, and gaining of a new heart also means that the Holy Spirit, that God Himself, takes residence in you and preaches to you. We talked in Rooted. And it, He preaches to you, the Holy Spirit preaches to you that you are a loved child of God even when you don't feel like you are. Brothers and sisters, that's the transformation when you place your faith in Jesus and you turn from your sins. You are an utterly new creation. One that seeks to serve God, not because, not because it can save you, not because, not because it can make you clean, but out of thankfulness because He has made you clean. 
Jesus came and lived perfectly and died so that your sins may be forgiven. So that your heart could be made new. So that you could stand clean, washed and unimaginably loved by God in His presence. What more beautiful truth in all the world is there? So brothers and sisters, I want to, I want to close by reminding you just, just, just once more that the Pharisees and the scribes and the crowd around Jesus, they completely missed that their problem of sin was not external, but it was internal. They completely missed that they needed a new heart. That they needed to be washed on the inside. And Christian, there are times where we, where we intellectually know this truth, right? We can, we can know this truth, but we live as though we don't in our day-to-day -day lives. We live within the lie that because we still struggle with sin, that we are still filthy in the eyes of God, and we still live as if we are the ones that can make ourselves clean. And that robs us of joy. It robs us of joy and happiness. It robs us of the freedom in Christ because we begin to just follow the set of rules that's just dead. And we work just as hard as the Pharisees, doing as many good deeds as we possibly can, thinking that they will scrub us clean. But Christians... I implore you, I beg you, to come live in the reality. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, live in the reality that you are clean. You are clean. Live in the reality that you will someday stand before the throne of God the Father and He will look at you as He does now. With the same love, listen, with the exact same love as that He has for the Son. We're told in Scripture that Jesus loves you, Christian, with the exact same infinite and unending love as He has for the Son, for Jesus. How incredible is that? How amazing is that? So lastly, friends, I ask that you live in the reality that the famous hymn proclaims that Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I whereby grace to claim, but I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. Friends, in Him alone, our wicked hearts are made new and we are made clean. Christians, we are clean. Let's pray. Lord, we can't begin to even, we can't, we can't even begin to express to you how wonderful you are. Lord, we were born filthy. We were born unclean sinners, deserving of your wrath, deserving of hell. And yet you looked upon us with mercy, with grace, with love. And Lord, even though we were repugnant 
to you. Even though we were filthy in your sight, Lord, you chose to still come down, take on flesh, live the perfect life that we never could, and die on the cross, taking our sins, our filth upon yourself so that we may be clothed in your righteousness, so that we may be given new hearts and live forever with you. Father, the word unworthy doesn't even begin to do justice. We are unworthy. Lord, your love, the depths of your love, is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. And yet you give it to us freely. So, Father, we thank you. God, help us live this week in the joy that you have made us clean. I pray this in your son's name.